kind of a little small two-part series on um, marriage, God's design and direction, and um, particularly around a topic that is not easy, difficult, uh, around marriage and divorce. Um, there's a book that I have found very uh, helpful and um, benefited from by Ray Ortland. It's called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. It's a short biblical theology of taking the, the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end and what um, marriage means. And I got a couple copies of this, and I want to give them away to some folks. So um, here's the deal. I want, I want to try to grab the spectrum here of the most tenured marriage here, like who has been married the longest, and then we're going to do the other, the other end of that, who has been married the shortest. And so um, I don't know where to start. There Maybe like 20 year, 25, 25 years, 25, 26, 20, 30. Is there a th- 49? Is it 49? Anybody got 49 beat? No? All right. Andrew, could you run that? Could you run that back to your dad? <clears throat> and, then, um, and then we got our uh, shortest tenured marriage. I don't know where, less than a year? We have less than a year? Less than a year. Okay. Well, I, was, I, I saw... Um, Megan and Josh, they're serving the kids. Okay, then you guys won. Then you guys win. All right, give them a hand. Come on. That's good. We hope you are served by those, those books. Um, as I mentioned, we are in this topic. Um, we spent last week in this uh, particular text, and we looked more deeply at God's design for marriage, kind of the why and for the who it is for. We're going to zoom out a little bit more and begin to talk a little bit more about the specifics surrounding divorce. And I, now I realize this particular topic, and I know it's Mother's Day. You're thinking like, uh, like what, what were you thinking, Nate, uh, when you planned this out? And you know what? I didn't plan this out. Um, but we, we reminded last week that we, we preach through the books of, of the Bible. We preach verse by verse. And there are times we just, that things land where they land. And uh, we look at that as God's sovereignty, and we just say, Lord, this is where you want us. Um, this is complex. This, these, neither of these messages are exhaustive to what needs to be answered around these complex and hard, uh, this hard topic. And so many variables, um, but my prayer is that God would, would meet us all wherever we might be in that, in brokenness and um, and strength, and the Lord would, would bring to us as a church a resolve to look to Christ um, in where broken things are and resolve to model and live in the beauty and design that God has for, for marriages. And so um, I'm going to read our text this morning, and this will be kind of a springboard into other verses that we're going to look at. We have lots to cover, um, and so we'll, we'll read and then we will, we will pray. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning, 
Of, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Would you join me as we just pray for God's help in his word upon our hearts today? Lord, we, we understand that the... Lord, we understand the reality that your words come to us and sometimes they are, they are hard uh, to understand. Um, the way they come to us, the, the impact it has in all of our struggles and weakness. Um, each of us walk in this morning, we, we realize we are weak. And uh, even this topic of marriage, there, there, is, there is not one marriage in this room that, that is not without need of your grace. Um, not one heart that is not in need of your, the power of your gospel uh, around this topic. And so we, we, we come humbly today. We come humbly uh, and, and in need of help. We, we're in need of your word. And we, we are in need of our hearts to come under your word. Because um, left to ourselves, we will try to come above your word. We will we'll try to design and manufacture something in our own way on our own thinking, and, uh, or the, what the world would tell us is true. And we want to come under your good word, because under your good word is the best. And under your work, Jesus, in your gospel is where we find hope, wherever we land today. And so we thank you for that promise. Amen. Amen. Well, sometime last year, I went in to, to donate blood. Um, this was the first time I had ever done that. Um, I was a bit nervous. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do all those vitals and get pricked and poked and all those things. If you've done this before, you, you know. Um, but in the process, I had to do sort of the vital deal, and then I had this big, long questionnaire. If you've done this, you're aware of it, this long questionnaire on a computer. The nurse leaves me alone with this computer, and I'm just having to scroll through and click yes and no. Um, and, you know, on top of the big questions like, have you ever had a blood transfusion, to have I had a transplant of some organ, um, you know, there's some smaller incidental questions like, in the past three months, have I gotten a tattoo? And some very explicit and personal questions, uh, which for the sake of keeping this kind of PG-13, I will not mention them. But I do appreciate that they asked those questions, given if I needed that person's blood, I would want to know that that person wasn't engaged in particular activities. Uh, but as the questions went through, there, I wasn't ready for a few of these questions. And they were asked like this. There was a couple of them that said, from 1980 through 1996, did you spend time that adds up to three months or more in the United Kingdom, countries of England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Isle of Man, the Channel of Islands, Gibraltar, Falkland Islands, yes or no? Or from 1980 to the present, did you ever have a blood transfusion in those particular countries? 
Now, at this point, I, in this tiny little room, I started looking around thinking, is there a camera in here? And are, is somebody like feeding questions to me based on some answers I had on my application? Um, because you see, I lived roughly those exact same years while in England, while my dad was in the military between 86 and 90, 92 to 96, and I was in England. And I, I was thinking, how do they know this? How do they know this? It was very weird, but, you know, being a pastor and all, I had integrity. I had to answer yes to that question. But soon the nurse came in, and, uh, and she kind of sat me down and said, Sir, I'm sorry, but we cannot take your blood. Um, and I'm thinking, why? And she began to explain that because I lived in Europe during those particular years, that's when mad cow disease was going rampant, and there is just no way to test for mad cow disease, um, only post-mortem. And so um, Hiller and I have had this discussion about when I die, if there's a wish, she can, can I cut, I guess you just have to cut the brain open and look in there. But, um, you know, one of the, the, you know, one of the symptoms of having mad cow disease is behavioral and thinking issues. And so it did make me consider about, <laughs> makes sense, there's some things about me. <laughs> Uh, I know I don't think I have it, but, but there was a concern about exposure. And of course, I appreciate that they do ask those questions. But I am forever exempt from donating blood. There is, there is no exemption. I cannot uh, give blood. And, but these historical questions were asked to give uh, understanding to an underlying issue. If it would prove safe, all these questions or right for my donation? Would it allow or disallow? Would there be permission or not? And those are helpful because of the value of blood, the importance of blood. And similar to this alarming survey that I had to go through, Pharisees come and they are testing Jesus. And one of the things they're doing is to challenge and discredit his authority. They were trying to siphon off his his uh, exposure or his influence, but they're also trying to get approval of the many and vast allowances that they wanted for divorce. They, they were all about exceptions, but Jesus doesn't fall for their trap, and he does not pull out a whiteboard and sketch out a conditional flow chart. If you do this, and she does that, and he does that, uh, the Pharisees all wanted exceptions, and Jesus didn't want to give in to any of that. He was not going to have that. He pushes back and explains God's intention from the beginning. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, their plan from eternity as they planned creation and set it into motion was that a man and a woman would be given in marriage and God's plan for marriage, one man and one woman, would be lifetime. And we looked at that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you didn't. And if you see here in verse 6 in our text, Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, this was his plan. He affirmed God's design and the beauty of male and female, both in his image, two genders to reflect God's image and glorify him as a man and as a woman and they would bring forth glory. And then man and woman would leave their father and mother, and then they would be united and joined together in this one flesh union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And God would be the one who's 
who's the one over that marriage ceremony ultimately. Jesus says what God has joined together. So marriage is, is from him, is, he's authored that, and it is for him. It is for his glory. It's his. He owns it. It's for him. And this glory, this displaying purpose is seen more clear in Ephesians chapter 5, where we, Paul expounds on the, the beauty of marriage and the purpose of marriage, and he says this in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this secret, this mystery is not something that we can't intelligibly understand, but it's something that was hidden but now has been revealed over history in time as as, uh, redemption has unfolded that since the beginning of time, marriage, this one flesh union, is to model and display the relationship Jesus has with his church. It reflects his sacrificial death his covenant-keeping love to secure his bride's love and affection forever. Uh, And the world cannot tell us that. The the world does not give us a picture of that. Uh, Shortly after creation, we know marriage marriage was corrupted. It It was conflicted and broken because of sin. So polygamy and adultery and all of these things were never part of God's design. And marriage became something that is orientated around me now, my, what I want, self-preserving, self-serving humans who twist the beauty to self-fulfillment. And so therefore, if I, if I don't get what I want, I can simply just move, move on. Whereas God's design, God's marriage is, is all about orientating around God and the serving and joy of the other. Selfless acts of serving someone else Gospel-empowered self-denial for the joy of the other spouse. And by this, the other spouse finds great joy. And in, in, in my giving, in that spouse's, other spouse's giving and serving, they receive great joy. And when we live in God's intended plan and his way, he gets great glory and God's people get blessing and joy. So in this honoring and this cherishing and loving and submitting and when all this serving happens with God shaping power and good, marriage is a beautiful story of God's redemptive plan. Loving his people, making his people, preserving his people to dwell with him because his faithful covenant love. And so it's no coincidence that the Bible starts with a wedding and it, and it actually ends with a wedding. So God's design this is his plan, and yet, as we've mentioned, sin has entered into the garden and has brought destruction upon creation. And so we see that as Jesus references that in our text. Um, and so this reference, the Pharisees actually point to this Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It is, it is the only passage in the Old Testament with an explanation or a procedure for divorce. The only one. And it, the point of, of that, part of the point of that was to protect women and children because they could be exploited. In ancient cultures, a divorced woman and children w- would often head into poverty or worse, prostitution. And so this would stop men from divorcing for any reason and then permitting just remarriage for any reason, but allowing there to be safety and protection for families. And so, like 
this scenario with blood because of its value and its seriousness, there required serious questions for the protection of it. And because of the seriousness and the esteem and high value of marriage, Jesus allows there to be serious questions to discern permissions around that. And so, with Jesus clarifying this holy standard, his design, the forefront of our mind, what direction is given regarding divorce? What, what exceptions or permissions, for, if any, are available to his disciples to allow divorce? Right? We're going to look at two main passages this morning that address this, and I, I believe they communicate and give two reasons or permission for, for divorce. Now, considering Mark, what we just read, um, if you were to read these verses alone, you would think there, there's, there's none. Um, verses 11 and 12 point to that. Jesus clearly states, if a man divorces his wife, marries another, he commits adultery, and likewise a woman, if she does, she commits adultery. Now, what's revealing in this story is because, how intense this was landing on the hearers. Uh, it, you begin to see that because of the way the disciples respond. And this has been a pattern for our disciples, right? The disciples are asked again about this matter, right? Like the situation before, there's confusion, and this is a hard thing, and then so they get alone later. It's the living room kind of after dinner setting, and the disciples are like, Jesus, you need to help us understand because what you just told us, we are confused, and it is difficult. And so these are hard and can be confusing for us, too. Um, but one of the important things when we are looking at Scripture and to help us understand in reading Scripture is when we come to something where we're confused or it's unclear is that we go to other passages of Scripture to help us understand that text, that harder, less clear text. And so we have Scripture interpreting Scripture. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to actually look at Matthew 19, and it's going to give us inclination to our first permission. Matthew 19. You're welcome to turn there if you want. I, I will have some texts up here on uh, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the screen. Now, a very close parallel to Mark's account, we see Jesus tested by the Pharisees. And they come at him with a, with a little more distinguished question that we, we actually considered last week. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus brings them to created design. He tells them this wasn't the purpose. And then they ask, well, well, why then did Moses give them a certificate of divorce? Why were they commanded? And we see this in verses 8 and 9. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So this is where is often been referred to as the, the exception clause. And there are some, con, there's some confusion around this exception clause because it's, it's not included in other gospel accounts, like here in Mark. Um, so did, did those other... Leaders and authors not know, did did Jesus really say this? Um, Now remember, here in Mark, the Pharisees are arguing about a sort of no-fault divorce reason, permissions for anything from adultery to burning food. Uh, And though there was this spread of conservative and liberal groups teaching, it was understood 
that there were some bare minimum valid reasons for divorce and remarriage among all of that context in that time. Uh, John Stott comments, and he says this, it seems far more likely that its absence from Mark and Luke is due not to their ignorance of it, but due to their acceptance of it as something taken for, for granted. After all, under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. So nobody would have questioned the marital unfaithfulness was a just grounds for divorce. So Jesus is addressing the, the trivial reasons and hitting the reset button. And his exception is that one man, one woman, a lifetime union together should be God's design. But divorce is a result of sin and permission granted for sexual immorality. We looked at this word indecency last week, and it's possible that Deuteronomy 24, this word indecency is a type of sexual sin. So Jesus affirms here in Mark 10, verses 11 through 12, that if you divorce and remarry for any reason other than except for sexual immorality, you are guilty of sin, of adultery, for that previous marriage is still valid and real before God. So this exception echoes as well in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus communicates the very same words. And so what about this word sexual immorality? Where This is the Greek word porneia. Um, it's a very broad term. It's where we derive the, the word, English word that we have, pornography. It refers to physical adultery or prostitution, incest, bestiality, sex before marriage. It's, a, it's an umbrella term that can consider all kinds of sexual sins. And so, therefore, Jesus is saying sexual immorality, this sexual unfaithfulness, is such a sin that it, it breaks this marriage covenant. And so divorce is permitted, permitted because this type of sexual sin breaks that holy marital bond. It is a grievous offense to the one flesh union, and it fractures and it destroys this, this covenant. Now listen, Jesus did not say divorce was commanded or required due to sexual immorality. There's permission here, yet it is not required. And the gospel comes to us, comes to sexual sinners. Every one of us in this room is a sexual sinner. Sin has impacted us in unique ways in our sexuality and the decisions we have made. And the good news is that Jesus came to redeem marriages broken by sexual immorality and by sexual sin. The story of Hosea, the prophetic story of Hosea is one that's all about God's redeeming love towards a sexual, immoral, wayward spouse. And that story is really a pointing to Christ who came and loved his sexual wayward, sexually wayward bride to save her, to cleanse her, to redeem her in his love. So there is gospel hope in all of that. So sexual morality is a grounds. Secondly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, communicates a second reason, and this is we've titled this the desertion of an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in that chapter, to a little context, 
is Paul is addressing various topics on the issues surrounding relationships uh, and stations of life. He talks about singleness and bond servants and widows and sexual intimacy within marriages. And his encouragement is what faithfulness looks like to live and remain in those situations to honor the Lord. And one of the issues that is presented to Paul is a situation where there's a Christian spouse who is married to a non-Christian. Now, Corinth in this time was a seriously pagan, horribly pagan city. And yet the gospel is going forward and people are being saved. And so the question was presented, what do you do if one of the spouses becomes a Christian and the other one does not? And God tells them through Paul's letter to remain in that marriage. In verses 12 through 13, it says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So Paul, Paul in this little phrase, I, not the Lord, is not saying this is just like my musing and it's my idea and it's not really important. It, it, it basically means he never heard, nobody heard Jesus say this exactly and they recorded this, but he is, this is coming with full apostolic scriptural authority. But he says, God is saying, do not divorce that um, unsaved spouse. This is not valid. And actually he affirms that in your Christian witness, it's possible that God will save that other spouse. So remain with that unbeliever. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Obviously, God will do the saving, but it's through the witness and the loving reflection and testimony of your life that God could grant salvation. So remain in that marriage. Remain faithful and lean on God's help to strengthen you in that. And then we come to this verse 15. We are told this, but... If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here is what we would consider as a second exception. If the unbelieving spouse abandons or deserts the other spouse. What we have here is a physical act of abandonment, of leaving The unbeliever departs the Christian spouse. And Paul says, if this happens, let it be so. In such cases as this, situations like this, that believer is not bound. They're not enslaved to that any longer because that covenant has been broken. They're they're free to divorce and that believer is free to remarry only a believer. And so we see this desertion and abandonment is likened it's likened to sexual immorality and that it is a grievous offense to the one flesh union. It's a severing, a breaking of that covenant responsibility. And so, summary, we looked at two reasons that Scripture gives permission for sexual morality and abandonment and desertion of an unbeliever and because both of these break the marriage bond and covenant. Now, these are the, the, the two clearer categories the scripture gives us. Um, and my apologies that this is, this, you know, this, this is good, important, necessary information for us to communicate. And so I realize the approach of this sort of Sunday is a little bit different 
and how we're talking through this. Um, but these are the, the two clear categories Scripture gives. Um, however, I'm going to mention one more, and I do so cautiously in it, in it because Scripture isn't clear on this one. Um, I had one friend who said it's like two and a half, if maybe we'd want to communicate it in that way, um, because there are so many variables around this, and it's not explicit. Um, but that, that reason is a reason of abuse. But first, before we kind of talk that out, I, a few words. We as a church um, and as pastors absolutely denounce any and all forms of abuse or any sort of domestic violence in a marriage or in a home. It is sin. God hates it. It's an evil that God denounces. If you read through the Old Testament and you, if you remember even back towards our Old Testament Minor Prophets series last year, that his condemnation and judgment against those who use their power to oppress and push down the vulnerable, the weak, children, the poor, women, God hates it and he judges it. And so any kind of abuse, any form, verbal, sexual, physical, mental, has zero tolerance in any home, but specifically the Christian home. None. None. And so if there is harm or if there is danger in a home, we would encourage that that spouse or those children to remove themselves to seek help. We believe that God uses civil authority He says he uses that for his justice and judgment, so we report according to state law. Um, And God uses ecclesiastical authority, church authority, Um, meaning he uses pastors and God's design within local churches to bring discipline and justice where needed. And pastors care about that. And so where there is unrepentance, ongoing hard-heartedness that remains in an offending spouse that is a member of our church, the church is to initiate formal church discipline for the purpose of rescue and redemption for that individual and for at home, according to Matthew chapter 18. So saying that, Scripture does not directly and specifically address abuse as a reason for divorce. However, if a spouse can do such damage in a breaking of that marriage bond by physically deserting that spouse or grievously in their sexual immorality against the spouse and permitting a divorce, we believe there is a type of damage that can come through physical violence and abuse that brings such destruction to that marriage covenant that by the level of sin, so prove that that aggrieving spouse is an unbeliever by their hard-heartedness and can be used, viewed as a form of abandonment or desertion in that marriage covenant. This could be viewed as that. And so, along with physical desertion and sexual morality against the spouse, there is a certain, certain cases, because of the extent and duration, certain forms of, of abuse could give divorce permission. Now, slow in all of this, and this is hard, this is difficult. These are case-by-case situations This takes wisdom, this takes time, this takes support and counseling and discernment. Repeat, to repeat, divorce may be permissible, but it's never required. And only as an option when time and through attempts of reconciliation and we've exhausted all 
opportunities for God to restore and reconcile those situations. God can do it. God can know, do it. I, I know I know, and have seen some of the most horrific um, marriage situations that you would think are irreparable that God, our God, our powerful God can restore and heal. And so that is, a, that is the thing we look to. And I mentioned this last week, and this has been sort of my prayer and hope in, in two categories. As, as a church, through these two weeks, <clears throat> that we would be reminded of the beauty and the glory and the good of marriage. And we would seek God to bless and intensify the beauty of that. And where we have become apathetic or um, just kind of coasting, um, nobody, nobody coasts into healthy marriages. <laughs> just, nobody coasts into stronger, more vibrant marriages. It, it takes work and effort and time and sowing, and, but that God would help us experience the glory intended for that. And then we would hold out gospel hope where there is brokenness. We would come alongside those who are hurting and, and have been impacted through that, and we would care for with the love of Jesus. And we would be a church that people could come through these doors with those situations and be loved and cared for by the gospel. And so in light of those two things, I just want to kind of share a few things, kind of a smorgasbord here of some encouragements for us as a church. First of all, we need to remember our need for his mercy and his grace. Uh, there should be none of us, and we're hearing this message that we, we, like, there's a puffed up, like, I got this. The Pharisees loved to look down on other people and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad my marriage isn't like that. I'm glad my marriage is better than theirs. Um, the gospel comes and it proves us all falling short of the glory of God. Jesus' high bar and glory and magnificence of marriage puts us all at the foot of the cross. His law comes to us and says, you are guilty and you have fallen short of this immeasurable high bar that I have for you. And you need me. You need forgiveness You need help. And so we all begin there. There is no A++ marriages in this room who are desperately in need of God's grace. Any healthy, beautiful condition of a marriage in this room is all by God's grace, by God's grace. So we come and we realize we need God's grace. I have failed to love Hillary as Christ loved the church, and I have failed to nurture her and steward her and prefer her as she deserves and I am a selfish, proud man, and I need Jesus' forgiveness. And I need his help to love well. And so the cross exposes all as guilty, and it all draws us to our need for mercy and grace wherever we are. And then it also extends gospel hope both to those who have offended in these situations and those who have been offended in these situations. The gospel comes to both of those. And it offers compassion to those. And divorce does not detach anyone from the mercy and the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Each of us have been impacted in here. And, we, and some of us might be even here and think, well, I, maybe, I, maybe I got out of this situation and I shouldn't have. Or maybe you were the aggrieving spouse. And we come 
and we worship a Savior whose cross is big enough for any of those things. His power and his mercy is big enough for all of those. His forgiveness and cleansing is big enough for all of those things. Our identity is one in Jesus Christ. He is our identity. He is our identity. Secondly, I want us to pursue his best for marriages, church. Sin troubles, sin hinders, but we are empowered by the power of God. The very power of God, the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells within his people. And his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is ours, church. That is ours, church. And so we are capable of change. We're capable of healing and forgiveness. We're capable of seeing God conform us to his likeness and the beauty that he wants us to walk in. And so God has made that provision for us so that we could not just stay where we are, but that we can move towards his beautiful design. Here's the deal. We cannot do that alone. We do that together as God's people. I don't know of any marriages that I look to as, as just, I see God's grace marked on those marriages and I want to be like them and model ways that they would say, we did this by ourselves." No, they, they were in relationship with people. They had mentors. They confessed their sins and asked for help and prayer and they sought God's help in community. They did it with other people, okay? That's what we need. And I have observed over time as a pastor that the ones who often are detached from the body, from worship, from community, from discipling relationships that are in isolation, those are the ones usually falling off the edge in danger. And so don't be there. Don't do that. Welcome help. Welcome help. There's pastoral care available. There is counseling available. There are resources available. There are mentor couples among us that would be happy to sit and care and pray for you. And there is no condemnation wherever you're landing in that. We all are there at the foot of the cross. And again, encourage you men, we, we are to initiate that. This is not on your wife to figure out and get help. This is on you. The Lord came knocking for Adam in that garden. And he comes and he knocks for us. He's looking to us to lead and initiate. That's us. So let us lead in that. And to those of us who are here and maybe unmarried, uh, referenced this last week, and I hope you were just encouraged and just encourage again Lord's gift and blessing. In Matthew 19, the the disciples turn to Jesus and say, maybe it's better that we should not marry after they heard this, this intense call. And uh, it is true. But Jesus goes on to say that there are some who are made eunuchs because of life physically. They're unable to marry and, and don't. And there's others that are made this by God. It is a gift that God has given. And that call for those who are not married is one to live, not according to the words, world standard in celibacy, but according to God's. And that is a life of purity and holiness to him, sexual purity, and one given to his kingdom and his purposes. And so I encourage you to continue to give yourself to that. In conclusion, one of the big stories of Scripture is of a bride and a groom. 
It is one of God's bride that he calls his people and through a covenant that he initiated and he made that he is faithful to and loving and without wavering and holding to that covenant, his bride, Israel, continued over and over again to walk away from him, to be unfaithful to that covenant, unsatisfied with his love, unsatisfied with all his kindness and faithfulness and given itself over to other lovers again and again. And yet in that rejection, in that separation, God continued to love and pursue and to, with forgiving, relentless love, pursuing and long-suffering patience, captured the heart of his bride, securing her eternal home. Now we are here in Mark, and we are in this section where Jesus is communicating his progression towards Jerusalem and the cross. I just find it interesting that here in the thick of Jesus communicating the hard-heartedness, infidelity, struggle of God's people to remain faithful to him, Jesus says, you know what? I'm still going to that cross. This is my path. I am heading towards my cross to suffer, to die, and to rise. In all the sinful inclinations of men's heart and the brokenness of relationships and marriage to him and others, I'm going to sacrifice myself, the expense of myself, so that I can preserve and save my beloved. This is our hope, church. This is where we ground it, and this is where Jesus is going, and this is where we have to look again and again and again. So fighting for faithfulness in marriage or here and among and just feeling the gravity of brokenness, we turn to the one, Jesus Christ, who for his sinful bride came to reconcile her to himself, to cleanse her and wash her and purify her, not by what she's done, but what he's done. And that's why we look at that wedding that's coming in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Where did that fine linen come? Where did that pure linen cleansing garment come from? It came because of his righteousness. Became because of his forgiveness. And so, church, let us walk in the good of that gospel. Let us fight. Let us remember that in our brokenness and see it's Jesus' work and his doing. Let's pray. Lord, you do call us to something that, that is holy and powerful. And in and of ourself, it, it would seem impossible. And all of us are, are in this room with stained hands in the sense that we've been guilty of not remaining faithful and loving as we should. And yet at the expense of yourself, Jesus, at the sacrifice of yourself, Jesus, 
in order to cleanse your bride, to love your bride and all the unfaithfulness. Lord, you, you gave yourself. You emptied yourself. Knowing all of those things, why were we yet sinners? Jesus, you died for us. And so may the, the power and the beauty of that, Lord, be the thing that, that stirs us to treasure and value and esteem that covenant that many of us are in. And Lord, to be also amazed that we can walk into your mercy and grace to find cleansing and help and hope in the brokenness that has impacted us. Things that we've done, things done to us. And Lord, let Cross of Grace be a church marked by grace and mercy. Wherever, wherever people are in among our community or where you would bring in people into our community, Lord, there's no place for sinful judgment, humility, and holding out your hope, Jesus. So let that be what marks us as your people. For we are, we are a picture of that as your covenant people, marked by grace and mercy alone. Amen. Amen.